This is Hannibal here, and this is the World Class Cat from World Class Pro Wrestling with Jerry the Boss Bostic, the owner of World Class Pro Wrestling. And this week, as the special guest, none other than one of the commentators from the original World Class Championship Wrestling, Mark Lawrence. How are you doing today, sir? I am very well. How are you guys? We're great, man. Thank you for doing this today. You know, uh, it's it's a real blessing to have you on. We had tremendous feedback, as I was telling you about a minute ago. We're really looking forward to it. Before we get into everything, I want to remind everybody, World Class officially returns October the 3rd in Wichita, Kansas at the world-famous Cotillion. You can see Matt Hardy versus Fuego Del Sol, world-class champion and UFC superstar Stephen Bonner, Jacob Fatu, uh, ECW legend Sandman, Marty Bell, Bloodhunter, MLW's Gino Medina, Rodney Mack, Gideon Bain. The list goes on. We can't wait to come back. That show will be live on pay-per-view. And from there, we're also pleased to announce we're going to be returning to Texas December the 11th at Southern Junction in Irving for world-class Christmas Star Wars. So we're really excited about that. And uh, we got a very special guest joining us in December, and that's going to be AEW's own QT Marshall. So we're really excited about that. Uh, more details coming soon for that. Uh, you know, we have Matt Hardy in Wichita, QT Marshall in December. So connect the dots how you will. <laughs> and now we're going to get rolling with Mark. Mark, uh, figured we'd start off by just telling people how you got into wrestling, because it's definitely not like most of our stories of getting into wrestling. So why don't you drop this one on the people that aren't aware? All right. It'll take me about three hours to tell it, but we've uh, got all the time in the world. (laughs) (laughs) It really won't. I was doing uh, a little announcing and broadcasting as a college student for the Texas state radio network based out of Fort Worth. And uh, I was the PA guy for the Fort Worth Texans minor league hockey team that had their games at Will Rogers Coliseum, same place as Fritz's Monday night show. And I got a phone call from a backup sports guy from the NBC affiliate in DFW, Channel 5. His name was Steve Harms. He was a Michigan native, big hockey fan. And uh, he told me there's going to be a PA job open in the area. And when he told me that, I thought, wow. Rangers, Mavericks, Cowboys. (laughs) And uh, I said, are you interested? And I said, sure, I'll be glad to to talk to anybody. He said, well, Fritz Von Erich is going to call you. And I said to myself, well, I'll clean the language up. Poop. Wrestling. I don't want to do wrestling. I don't know anything about it. Why in the world would anybody want to do that? And I didn't tell him that, and I thanked him. But I didn't plan on saying yes, and I was going to get my uh, gracious decline ready for if this guy called here in a few days. So were you aware at that time of who Fritz was and world-class and all of that? No. Uh, I later learned that Steve Harms had done some TV for Fritz, was a wrestling fan himself. And if you go back and look at some of the old tapes before I came there, there were some shows where Bill Mercer was the ring announcer and Steve Harms did the uh, commentary. And I didn't know any of that at the time, but it wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't five minutes before my phone rang again. We're talking, you know, 
early 80s. It's a landline phone, my little uh, student efficiency apartment. This is big old gruff, imposing voice in the phone, Fritz von Erich. And he was very nice. He was very complimentary. And what he asked me to do was basically a three-week fill-in gig. Now, in those days, you didn't have your syndicated world-class show yet. It was just big-time wrestling. And he taped his show on Monday night in Fort Worth, and it stayed in the can all week until it aired without any post-production uh, on Saturday night on Channel 11. The Dallas show ran at the Sportatorium on a Sunday night. It followed Saturday night's uh, TV. And what Fritz wanted me to do was work Monday, Sunday, three times. Monday, Sunday, Monday, Sunday. And uh, I was supposedly filling in for a guy, he called him by name, who had gone to Europe to promote a music tour. Well, I really was leery, but he was nice to me. He was offering generous money for the day, more than, you know, the hockey team paid. And I thought for three weeks, you know, what have I got to lose? What am I going to do if I don't do it? So I graciously accepted and hung the phone up, not sure I'd made the right decision, but put on a coat and tie for a few days later and went to Will Rogers Coliseum and went in the back and everybody's kayfabe and who is this tall, skinny guy? Who is he? Is he a Mark? You know, what is going on? And Gary Hart was the booker. and Bronco Lubitsch was involved. And Fritz was there. And they were all very gracious. Thank me for being there. But they literally had to tell me who the wrestlers were. I had no clue. I had never been before. Wow. Uh, I glanced through the TV channels and seen Bill Mercer doing TV. But, uh, I mean, I didn't know who Kevin Von Erich was. I mean, I was clueless. <laughs> And uh, all I did was, you know, sound professional. And I was the PA guy and the ring announcer. And you promoted next week's card and uh, introduced the wrestlers in five minutes, 10 minutes, winter is, you know, the set and the other. Well, I worked that Monday and the following Sunday, Monday, the following Sunday, third Monday, the following Sunday. And that third Sunday, I thanked them profusely. They had been so nice. It had been a lot of fun. They paid on the spot. They were honest, upright people. And I said, hey, if you ever need anybody else again, consider me. Give me a call. Oh, well, we will. Thank you so much. You did a great job. I went on my way. Well, this <laughs> was all in June, June of 81, and my birthday is in early July, so we're getting close to my birthday. And I think I may have been at my parents' house on Monday evening after that final Sunday for a birthday dinner. Either way, I was having dinner at their house. And Kathleen D. White, who was Fritz von Erich's secretary, called. And evidently, you know, in those days you had a phone book. They found my parents' phone number, and that's the number they called. And, you know, we're looking for Mark Lawrence, uh, who has helped us uh, with Southwest Sports Wrestling. And my mother called me to the phone. And Kathy White says, there's been a mistake. Uh, you're needed at Will Rogers tonight. And it was 6.15 in the evening for an 8 o'clock show. So I ate quickly, ran home, put on a coat and tie, got to Will Rogers by 7.30 for the 8 o'clock show. And that turned out to be, you know, a nine-year gig. You know, I mean, that's pretty wild. You got into wrestling with no knowledge of it and – 
it ended up being nine years of your life. You know, that's pretty wild. We're going to also ask some fan questions as we go along. We have Adam Fairfax, and he said uh, he wanted he was curious about the Von Erichs over te- over America tour. He said, were the events taped? Did they draw well? And did you go out on, on the road with them for tours like that? I did not. And uh, I really don't know anything about that tour, so I can't offer any help. Uh, I, you know, stuck to Fort Worth and Dallas and occasionally went other places. Uh, but for the most part, I was not on the road with the guys. You know, I, I always find it very interesting. You were a mainstay in world class. You were probably one of the very few from the start to the finish from when it blew up to the end of it. And, uh, you know, some memorable things, you know, you called uh, Kerry's world championship victory. Like, what do you recall from that moment in time? Because that was, that was such a big moment at that time in wrestling. Well, I couldn't believe I was there. Number one, that was Bill Mercer's show. He did that show. Uh, Bill was teaching at, at University of North Texas in those years, and he did their football, he did their basketball, he did special events. And that show was in May. And uh, I don't know what in the world he was doing, but he told them, you know, six weeks in advance that he wasn't going to be there. And I remember it made Fritz mad because, you know, we're talking about probably the biggest show the wrestling world had known to that point. And, you know, he used that language and said, fine, we'll just use Barclay. (laughs) But uh, the whole thing was a fluke because, I started out as a ring announcer and got the hang of it and did that for about a year, but Bill was out a lot. And Bill would bring in a friend of his uh, who also was a backup sports guy who was a nice, nice fellow, very courteous, but he knew nothing about wrestling. He was about like me, and he, he had no enthusiasm, long periods of silence and uh, – <laughs> You know, it's like watching a, a hypnotic video on YouTube or something that puts you to sleep. It was just awful. And I thought, you know, this is absurd. At least get somebody in here that can show some passion and sell the product. And I just walked up to Fritz in the locker room on my nerve. I've been with him about a year. And I said, Fritz, Bill is out a lot. And uh, I'd like to have a shot at the TV and see if I can bring more passion to it. And, and I call the guy by name. And Fritz, you know, threw his language on, you know, GD, Mark, you've been reading my mind. I'm thinking the same damn thing. Puts his arm around me and walks in to Gary Hart and Bronco Lubitsch and says, we're putting Mark on color with Bill tonight. And uh, he can still do the ring announcing and then do some color on TV. And it was like, the next week or two weeks later, Bill was going to be out and they gave me the show. And I'm still horrifically green, nervous, uptight, uh, you know, 22 years old. And there I went with no post-production. It might as well have been live because if you uh, did anything wrong, it's going to run on the tape. And I started out doing the TV and I'll never forget that night. And then I didn't know that Fritz was in negotiations with uh, Mickey Grant and uh, Channel 39 for that syndicated show because all that was evolving behind the scenes. And as I learned of it, uh, they were going to give Bill that show and Channel 11 wound up being mine. So that's the history. 
but the the 84 star wars was the syndicated show and bill should have been there and he wasn't so that fell on my lap and that has been one of the most memorable days not only of my life but it gets so much memory and history now because uh, that's the day the title changed and went to care at what point did you realize like this like what you guys had was something truly special well, I was dating the woman I married, and I was hearing things about how great the ratings were uh, on Channel 11 and how uh, the advertising dollars were great, and we were often delayed for uh, basketball games, but yet our ratings were higher than the Mavericks. And when I was dating Mary, and we'd go out to eat, here these people would come, and They'd come sit down in the booth with us and and talk with us as if though they knew me. And, uh, you know, Mary got tickled with it, but I wanted a little privacy. But that's just a funny story. It dawned on me to that zone of society. There wasn't anything any bigger. You know, I think that wrestling is definitely one of the most passionate fan bases there is. And, and it is it's wild how from being a commentator to a talent, how you do develop this emotional connection with people. And oftentimes it is without even meeting them. And, and then, you know, it's situations like that, that really, to me, it kind of puts it in perspective because it realizes, you know, like sometimes when you do things, you know, you don't perceive yourself to be a big deal, but sometimes to people you really are. And then that comes a whole different set of expectations, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, now I'm going to play this big deal stuff up real big as you uh, talk to me about it's going to be prima donna city. And uh, either way, we'll have some laughs and fun as we get toward it. But, you know, I think you and I were visiting when we had dinner recently. Yes. Uh, I was so ignorant and so nervous that uh, I think I was getting the job done audibly but personally and visually it wasn't there and fritz took me aside one night in fort worth and again he's always very nice to me he yelled at other people but he's always so nice to me he put his arm around me and he said bart you sound great out there son but before my chest could swell he said but you look terrible <laughs> he said i want you to go stand in front of the mirror at home and let your face express what you're saying verbally he said the fans are going to think you're arrogant and so i took that as good advice and you know we had no color people in those days it was just bill by himself and then me by myself and it dawned on me that i had to be uh the play-by-play -play guy i had to be the psychologist i had to be the promoter I had to be the salesman. I had to be the storyteller. And Fritz always had this ethic, told the guys, don't let the announcer get in the fray. Don't, don't rough him up. You know, you can trash talk a little bit on the interviews, but we want the fans to respect the announcer just the way they do on Monday Night Football, which was big in those days. And when they respect the announcer, they'll trust what he is telling them. And so I took advantage of that and started some, lack of a better word, a little bit of hokey stuff and kind of brought it down to the level of our fan base. 
and begin to develop a rapport and would share a little humor and make references to current events and the behavior of the heels, you know, with trends in society like Akbar and Yasser Arafat and stuff like that. And that's when the thing really took off. Uh, when the fans started regarding me as their announcer, Channel 11 expanded from an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, Fritz doubled what he was paying me. Uh, he went up on the satellite, and uh, our ratings were just sky high in those days. And we were the highest rated show on the time block, highest rated show that Channel 11 had. And the competition uh, was never stated, but with Channel 39 doing the syndicated show and by now, Dallas has moved from Sunday to Fridays to enable that. You know, they had slow motion. They had instant replay. They had multiple cameras. And so Channel 11 on their own got away from the uh, old two-camera back-and-forth mindset and added a third camera and put it on the apron of the ring. Uh, so we upped our uh, opportunity, had a little slow motion replay. And when there was a major fiasco, they could do a little post-production. And when crises happened or unexpected developments, we could actually go to Channel 11 during the week and drop inserts into the tape, updating everybody like the death of Gino Hernandez or something. Uh, so they up their game. And that was all just fun. And it was happening fast. You know, it's wild. A lot of people don't realize world class was the first wrestling program to do those things. You know, oftentimes people just assume WWE did everything before everybody else. And that's simply not the case. World class was way ahead of their time in that area. What were your thoughts on Mickey Grant? You know, I never knew much about Mickey Grant, and he was never involved a lot in what I did. I really? would see Mickey at the studio when we would go uh, to do interviews. We would do interviews on Friday mornings for about three hours, and the interviews would load all those syndicated tapes that went all over the place so that when we were promoting matches in those areas, we had dedicated interviews for those territories. So we do interviews three hours. It was exhausting. But I'd see Mickey around, and he'd come to the Sportatorium, but I wasn't Mickey's guy, and there was never at all any problem. It's just I didn't understand the genius and the role that he had in all of that. My dealings more were more with Keith Mitchell, who was the director <laughs> of the World Cast production, and then Jim Lund, who was our director for the Channel 11 show in Fort Worth. You know, I love Keith. A lot of people don't realize uh, whenever we first started producing TV, uh, Keith was very instrumental in that. Uh, he helped me at no cost just to help me. He would watch our TV show. He would review it. He would give me tips, hints. You know, well, you know, this is great, but what about this way? You know, just things that he never had to do for me. What do you have to say about Keith? Because in my opinion, Keith is one of the best producers ever in pro wrestling. Well, I love the way you throw that no-cost deal out there as I'm threatening you with being a prima donna. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to let that go for now. Uh, you know, I told Embry the other day, I said, Jerry, he's such a nice man. He's bright, he's articulate, he's a good family man. And Embry assured me that that wasn't really an accurate description, uh, that he knows another side. So anyway, we'll we'll have fun with that. We're back he's to just Keith. mad because we ribbed him so good that day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to Keith. Keith was good at what he did. Keith didn't like me. And uh, 
<laughs> he never stated that, but I could tell because he thought I was a monotone. And uh, I can't argue there was some truth in that because I was still evolving. But as he began to probe into that a little bit, we developed a relationship and a rapport. And once he got to know me, he decided he liked me and I liked him. And so our relationship grew and evolved. And, you know, I was very sad when he disappeared because, you know, when something went on there toward the end, uh, Keith disappeared and we had somebody else producing that. We actually have a fan question. It's a good time to bring it up from Alan Kesselman. He wanted to know, <laughs> did you enjoy working with Eric Embry? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wish, Alan, you hadn't asked me that on camera, uh, because I would like to tell Eric, no, it was miserable. It was an embarrassment uh, and all that kind of stuff. But yes, I did. I had a great relationship with Eric. You know, I think Eric is honestly one of the greatest minds that I've worked with in pro wrestling. He understands every facet of what's going on. Well, and he came during a very vulnerable time for the promotion. It was in dramatic decline. There was a need uh, for some new babyface talent. You know, during the glory years, you had to bring in great heels because your babyfaces were there with Yvonne Erickson, the other uh, home-based talent. But Eric came in, and he was a great guy behind the scenes. He was creative. He was encouraging. He was cooperative. He was fun. He was affirming, and you got to realize he started out as a heel and a a gender questionable heel as well <laughs> in a day when society was not as progressive as it is now, and was able to turn that into babyface. And uh, Eric brought great energy back to the promotion, and he was over big time. And I enjoyed him immensely, and uh, have enjoyed connecting with him again. And uh, I hope he doesn't hear me saying these nice things, but that's an answer to our fans' question. What was it like whenever uh, he tore, took the banner down from the Raptors? What was that? What was that moment like? Well, you know, it was an air of sadness because it was the visual experience of that rite of passage of world class being no more. But the positive side was it, world class was already gone. Uh, it had had its day. There had been too much sadness, too much misfortune, too many bad decisions. <clears throat> and so for Dallas to live again, it was going to have to have a new identity. And Jared had brought that when he came in. Uh, people asked me a lot, did it change? And yes, it did, but it had to. And so for that angle to work, it just proved that there was a new level of energy, a new era. Uh, you still had, you know, the Von Eriks involved as much as they could be. Uh, so it was hoped that it was going to be a revival. And that, you know, we had a big crowd that night and a lot of excitement when it all happened. Mark or Mike D wants to know, Mark, who's your favorite wrestler of all time? <laughs> well, Mike. Uh, it may surprise you, and it's not because of his wrestling. It was his personality. This guy should have gone to Hollywood and been an entertainer, but his name was Armand Hussein, 
and I loved him. He took me places. We were pals. He was my favorite personality. As far as ring talent, boy, that would really be hard because there were so many great ones. Uh, certainly, Kerry Von Erich. Uh, I struggle with Chris Adams personally, but he was great talent in the ring. I love Gino Hernandez in and outside of the ring. Uh, Akbar was great talent, a great mind. Uh, so those would be some of my top. But my favorite person of all was Armand Hussein. Uh, Fritzel, Fritzy Snitzel <laughs> wants to know, what is Mark's opinion on who was world-class's best booker? Boy, that's a hard question because we, we had some good bookers. Uh, Gary Hart was there when, when I arrived and was there for my first year and a half or so. Uh, some of you guys may know when that transition occurred. Uh, I like Gary, had a good relationship with him. He was very helpful in teaching me. And uh, Ken Mantell came in. Ken came with energy. We later learned that he had kind of uh, proselyted for the position. Uh, and some of the people like the Freebirds weren't excited about that change, but Ken quickly won himself over. He's very positive, had high energy. He liked more energy around the ring. That's when he brought Skandor Akbar in. Jim Cornette came. He liked high energy managers. Uh, Mantel was good. So Hart and Mantel were as different as night and day, but uh, they were both good bookers. And, you know, as it began to run into trouble, David Manning did it. David had a great mind for the business. David just didn't have the uh, the 24-7 commitment that it took to be a great booker and some things slid. Uh, you know, George Scott came from New York and did it. George had seen his day. Uh, nice fella, didn't last long. Bruiser Brody did it. Uh, brought in Buck Robley. Bruiser did the best he could. Uh, both Hart and Mantell came back for runs very briefly because after my first five years, it kind of became a revolving door of bookers, sadly. But I would say Hart and Mantell, as different as they were, were both great wrestling minds. Kyle wants to know, do you look back and consider yourself a storyteller or an announcer when it comes to commentary? You know, that's a good question because it involved both. And as we got into the later years, color announcers were used more and more. <clears throat> and so the storytelling opportunities weren't as prevalent as they were back when I did it uh, by myself. But uh, telling the stories and relating those stories to people's lives and current events, like I mentioned a minute ago, uh, that made it fun. Now, you couldn't do both simultaneously, and some of the guys would get mad at me because you say, hey, you missed when I did this, or why didn't you say that? But you have to remember in those earlier bouts, we were there uh, to entertain and also bill for what was coming, both later in that show and in coming weeks, and that's where the storytelling got involved. How do you feel the storytelling is in today's product? Do you watch any of the, when is the last time you really watched pro wrestling? What do you think the difference is between now and then? You know, I don't have any interest in what I see today, Jerry. Uh, 
the high spots, the lack of selling. Uh, you know, in our day, if you got hit over the head with a chair and split open, we didn't see you for a few weeks, as opposed to coming back and miraculously taking the match, you know, at the end. Uh, and I don't see the steady, slow willingness to build the way we used to do. You know, a great feud that would build sometimes for six months. And if it was really great talent, it could go on for a year or more. And I'm not in a position to be a constructive critic or even a negative one for that matter, but I just missed that part of it. And since that was, you know, my experience, it's just not the same for me. Lurvy1963 wants to know, what were some of your favorite matches uh, that you remembered from World Class in the 80s? Well, I remember the night that uh, we were over in the auditorium. On Monday nights, we were always in the Coliseum unless something big was going on. We had to move next door to the auditorium where we were on the stage. And people didn't like it, but it had a great atmosphere over there. And Gary Hart had promoted a mystery partner for quite some time. And King uh, Big Daddy Bundy had been in wrestling with Yvonne Eriks, wore jeans, had a rope like Jethro Bodine on the clampets. Remember that? I'm dating myself. Uh, and Gary announced the mystery partner, uh, Big Daddy Bundy, come on down. And that's when King Kong Bundy emerged. And, you know, he got the singlet and started smoking the cigars and blowing the smoke in my face. And uh, that was a great night. The cage door at Reunion Arena where uh, Michael Hayes had gotten frustrated and slammed it. That was a hallmark, well-crafted, brilliantly carried out night. Uh, the World Championship in 84 was a thrill. Uh, the other great events were Gino Hernandez took the chain and uh, decimated the new Lincoln Town car uh, <laughs> you know, when they didn't win. You know, just great fun bouts like that that I'd love to go back and see again uh, on online. Uh, Jacob Dorfman, I think it was. Jacob Dorfman, he said, uh, did your Christian faith conflict with the backstage politics and what was going on in pro wrestling at that time? I thought that was a really good question. Yeah, it is. And uh, I never had a, a, a conflict with that. Uh, but it may have been there for some. The church I grew up in was very, they were very proud of me. Uh, there were a couple of negative folks, but they were negative in a proactive way. They were advocating for me. But uh, I, I began to have a problem with it when uh, maybe the last year and a half, and this would have been the Jarrett years, uh, because Jarrett's philosophy, and I like Jerry, don't get me wrong, I'm not at all being critical within the context of our fans' question. Jerry made some changes, and I would get involved a little bit. And then by then, I had gotten through enough seminary that I had taken my own church, and uh, Jarrett was running an angle with a little heel referee, African-American guy that went by the name of Harold Harris. And he was on the take for the heels, on the take for Akbar and Devastation Incorporated, and they were all getting a lot of heat. And uh, I got up one Sunday and greeted everybody in my church. And the announcements and prayer concerns were very first thing before we even sang a song. We had about 50 people there. And one old country boy in his hat and his overalls asked me, 
having seen the tape the night before on Channel 11. What are you going to do about that? And he said, the Lord's name in vain, uh, GD. And then he used the N-word with regards to the referee. And when that got blurted out in church, that's when I said to myself, Mark, is it time to say thank you and move into where the Lord has called? And within a few months after that, I had given uh, Jerry and Jeff my notice and uh, just moved on. So not really until right at the end. And then I began to see where there might be some ethical issues. Bobby Lincoln wanted, wants to know, do you know what happened to Ar Armand Hussein? Well, I tried to keep up with Hussein. He always lived a, a real private life. And somebody told me he actually lived until just three or four years ago. And I was doing a show, just came back. It was a small show. We did had Ross and Marshall Von Eric and Mesquite uh, one night. It's been several I years. Was there. Somebody, I was at that show. <laughs> okay. Somebody, I think that night, told me that Hussein had just recently died. And I hated that I'd lost track of him because he was such a wonderful guy. I can't tell most Hussein stories here in a public forum, uh, or there really would be a conflict with ministerial ethics. But uh, maybe at some point we'll have the opportunity to do that. Uh, Alan Kesselman wants to know, what, what were your thoughts on Bruiser Brody? <laughs> I love Bruiser. Uh, you know, he was ferociously independent. And that endeared him to the fans. It endeared him to some of the territories and the bookers. It alienated him from some others. But Bruiser was one of a kind. Frank Goodish, he was a great husband. He was a great father. He was a great businessman. He invested his money. He lived his gimmick. You know, he never washed the garments he wrestled in. You could smell him <laughs> out of his car and carried his grip with his stuff because he never washed them. Because that horrific, miserable odor, like being in a, in a prep room of the funeral home before they embalmed bodies, uh, that was part of his gimmick. And uh, when Bruiser learned uh, that I was really as interested in helping world class revive as I really was, he became my friend. And he became very affectionate, very supportive. And we worked together when he was Booker. And he took me aside one night's foratory and put his arm around me and said, Mark, I want to give you some loving advice. You're a young man. You got your whole life ahead of don't ever put yourself in position where you lose the right to say, and I'll abbreviate this, F you. And as vulgar as that was, I knew that Bruiser had my best interest at heart. Of course, what did I do? I go into the ministry where you have to accommodate everybody. But now that I'm an old guy and being courted by uh, a guy for TV again, I'm going to live that Bruiser Brody ethic and just give you a real run for your money. I love it. Uh, I actually heard from Eric. He brought up a good point for those watching out there. Uh, if you haven't heard, beautiful Bobby Eaton passed away yesterday. Uh, Mark, do you have any memories of Bobby Eaton? Well, I hate to hear that. Uh, I was just with him two years ago at that fan fest in Charlotte and met, uh, oh, met the guy, you'll know his name, that was, uh, back with the with uh, Cornette's group, the Midnight Express, early on. Uh, 
Oh, Dennis Condry. No, it was it was Dennis is the one I remember, but there was one before that. Uh, blonde, nice looking guy. His name Stan was Lane. Sweet Stan Lane. Stan Lane. Yes, yes. All of them were there, and we got to connect. And uh, Eaton was there, and we just had a great time. Uh, that was the night that Cornette was there in his pink suit, which is a story I won't tell unless you ask me. But I hate to hear that he has passed away. Good guy. And, uh, you know, I mean, he uh, worked a show for me a few years ago, and, and he really was a pleasure to have around. Uh, really great guy. One of the greatest tag team wrestlers of all time. Actually, uh, my favorite memories of watching him was uh, his television title run in WCW. I really enjoyed that, seeing him work as a singles wrestler. And the outpouring of support from the wrestling community uh, about that today was just overwhelming and beautiful. And, you know, uh, rest in peace, Bobby, and and our condolences go out to your family and friends. You know, it's, uh, I don't know, it's been a long week. You know, Burt Prentice passed away this week. And uh, who was it? It was Burt Prentice, Bobby Eaton, and there was one other. Jody Hamilton, the assassin. Jody Hamilton, the assassin, passed away, yeah, this week as well. Well, that's too bad. And, you know, from my experience, we lost so many of the guys while I was there. And since then, so many of them have passed on. And as you know, the lifestyle, being on the road, some of the other challenges, it's just so hard on the guys. But it just breaks my heart that we've lost so many because – Along with that goes so much of the the mindset and the psychology of that great era, as well as the memories. You're exactly right. And, you know, the the mindset and the psychology, uh, to me, is one of the, the biggest issues with the products that we see today. Um, what, what were your thoughts on Gino Hernandez? He was all, always personally one of my favorite people to watch in world class. I loved watching Gino Hernandez. Well, you know, before I answer that, uh, Jerry, you're not giving me any credit. I've been a pretty good heel. I never got to be a heel, but I've been a pretty good heel with you with all this threatening prima donna uh, stuff. So I hope you recognize that talent in me. You got one uh, last run in you, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Back to your question about Gino. I love Gino. Uh, I thought Gino had so much charisma and talent. Uh, the way he came across, the way he conducted himself, his interviews, what he said, what he didn't say, his ability to uh, crack the door open where you could see him uh, fearful or afraid and then him covering for that and compensating for that, all of which he did intentionally. He was quick in the ring. He was good looking. Uh, the hair, the Farrah Fawcett angle, uh, the Highland Park angle, the sports cars he was a great guy but he and i got to know each other a little bit i think the real gino charles wolf was uh, perhaps a little bit lonesome perhaps there was a little boy in him that needed uh some nurture that he didn't find from the superficial and i broached that a little bit it wasn't my place but i remember i saw gino one night at a texas ranger baseball game he's out there by himself and uh you know, we spoke and visited a minute. I was with people, and I just went up to him a week or so later there at the Sportatorium. I said, Gino, the next time you want to go to a ball game, call me, and we'll go eat, and I'll go with you. And he was so open to that and appreciative of that. 
And, you know, before anything ever developed in terms of a friendship, next thing I know, he's gone. You know, I think sometimes uh, we have to, We, I mean, we talked about this when we sit down in, in eight. Uh, you know, it's always good for everybody watching. Be mindful of the people around you. Like, you never know uh, what they might need from you. And it might be something as simple as saying hi or, or asking how they're doing or even making time to even spend time with them. So. You know, be conscious of all the people around you. You never know what tomorrow brings. Make sure you spread as much love as possible to everybody. And I feel like that's a good point to put that in there because that, you know, that's a good example of it. Oh, you're just baby facing all over the place. And <laughs> you're, you're establishing me as the heel and the antagonist of this podcast. Maybe this, maybe this is this all coming full circle for you. You becoming a heel on your last run, going out with a bang. <laughs> Oh, I'm too sweet to do it more than just this. I'll, I'll be a good baby face announcer. We've had multiple people ask this, so I got to bring it up. They say, could you ask Mark to say, could be, might be, it is. <laughs> We've actually had a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can do that, but that is not original to me. Uh, I was a big fan and this goes back to Mercer. So this is going to be a long-winded preacher's answer to your question. <laughs> Bill Mercer had done Texas Ranger baseball their first year that they were in Arlington, having moved from Washington, D.C., maybe two. And then he got in a financial issue and uh, went on to Chicago and was the number two guy for the Chicago White Sox doing radio and TV for them. And Harry Carey, who everybody remembers from the Cardinals, and later the Cubs actually started his career in Chicago uh, working for Bill Beck when he owned the White Sox. And I was just mesmerized by Harry Carey and uh, fascinated that Bill was working with him. And one of Harry's trademarks, uh, you know, announcers with that could be, might be, it is, and it was mainly a home run call. And uh, since Harry had been an idol, I was able to incorporate that uh, in the finishes, you know, and sometimes we never got to it is. It could be, it might be, and then it wasn't. But then when it was the finish, uh, I was able to finish it off. John Gear wants to know, what advice would you give any young wrestling broadcaster looking to improve their craft? Go into the ordained ministry instead. <laughs> Hey, you said it. you've been you've been on record multiple times saying pro wrestling prepared you for that more than anything in seminary, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's where I learned to relate to people, to know people, to do what you just baby faced yourself through in looking out and and reading between the lines and seeing where people's needs are and you know being that that presence of hope and encouragement to them, as well as fun, fantasy, and story, which, you know, everybody needs. Uh, but back to the fan's initial question, uh, I would encourage any young announcer to have realistic expectations about the wrestling world as we know it now. And uh, I would also encourage them to look for opportunities not to steal from the product, but to help people trust and respect you and uh, take advantage of that whenever the opportunity comes. That's great. Ivan Santos, he wants to know, did you ever get a job offer from Vince McMahon? I did not. Uh, 
the only job offer I had beyond our Dallas office was, I can't remember if it was Ken Mantell or who it was. Somebody approached me about going to work for Cowboy Bill Watts when Mantell was there after he had left world class in whatever year that was, maybe 85 or so, and had taken some talent with him. And I was leery of that because, uh, you know, I, I had my eyes on the things. And number two, I said, do they really want me? You know, they had Jim Ross, who was great. The fans knew him. He was kind of the Lance Russell of that territory. They really want me. Or are they just trying to get me off Channel 11 where our ratings are so high? So I didn't trust it. But I never heard a word from McMahon, have never been included or invited in anything they've done at any point in time. That's interesting. Um, let's see. We have 405 Cowboy wants to know, how did you feel when World Class uh, got on ESPN in 1986? Uh, well, we were pleased about it. It was more work for me, selfishly, uh, because a lot of that stuff required new uh, new intros, new narration, new explanations, new exits. Uh, and it brought us a, a new fan base that was just beyond what the syndicated show or the satellite show was doing. And when I say that syndicated was out of Dallas and 11 was the satellite then. Uh, so it was a great thing for us. I was just sorry that our product was struggling by then as much as it was. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have been interesting to see it be on ESPN in the heyday of it all, for sure. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Jeff said, in your opinion, what's the most important quality a wrestler should have? Well, I don't know. That's a tough question because the qualities for a babyface are different from that of a heel. And both of those need uh, the ethic of responsibility to be where you're supposed to be, be there on time, and be cooperative with your promoters. Everybody's got an ego. Everybody's got ideas. But, you know, you've got to fit in where you fit in. And if you'll trust that, there'll be opportunities. Of course, here I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about. I've been out of it for 30 years. But in my experience, uh, if you'll trust the promotion and work your input in uh, when it's appropriate, things will just go better for you than if you come in and try to be the big. If you try to act like I'm acting with Jerry Bostick tonight, uh, that's going to come back and get you before. You're not going anywhere with that career. <laughs> I'm not going to go anywhere with you. I'll get myself. Uh, Al's, uh, Al wants to know, what was your opinion of Sunshine? Well, she was a delight. Uh, she was very affectionate, very pleasant uh, behind the scenes. Uh, she did a good job of being the goody two-shoes, sh two uh, sunshine, happy, wholesome girl, you know, at ringside. And then as things evolved, she could get mad and get rough when she needed to. And as you know, before it was over, we had Missy Hyatt. We had Stella Mae French. You know, it really got out of hand, but she she was great talent. And the early part of that uh, with gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and Sunshine, I you know, that. that hit us during our peak with Freebirds and Von Erickson. It went well. What What were your thoughts on the Freebirds? Because they, you know, I think sometimes, uh, you know, people are always quick to bring up the Von Erickson naturally, but 
I don't feel like the Von Erichs would have got where they got it without the Freebirds. Well, I don't see why the Freebirds played such a role, Bostick. It looked to me like Mark Lawrence is the one that put them all over. Hey, you had to tell those stories. You have a good point, sir. You, you ought to be, I mean, what do the Freebirds have that, uh, you know, Pastor Mark doesn't have? But <laughs> there I am back teasing you again being a heel. You know, Gary Hart is the one that worked hard to, to bring the Freebirds in. And uh, they came in with tremendous talent. And you're actually right about the Von Erichs getting a lot of credit. The Von Erichs were who they were. They were great. It was their time. It was the perfect scenario. But you're never going to have a great baby face without great heels. And World Class had some great heels. Absolutely. And headlining that list were those Freebirds, three diametrically different individuals who complemented each other so beautifully in their difference. You know, you had the obnoxious, flamboyant showman Michael Hayes <laughs> and the hair and out there wiggling his butt and aggravating everybody. And then you have big old Bam Bam Gordy, who's nothing more than a big old playground bully. Everybody was afraid of him. And then you got Buddy Roberts, who is acrobatic. He's creative. He can be the class clown. He can be the whipping boy. He can be the instigator. He just did so much uh, that they were just remarkable, both in and out of the ring. Did Michael always dress as elaborate as he does now? <laughs> Well, I haven't seen Michael. I think we talked about him. I would love to see him and visit with him again. Not sure I'll ever have the opportunity because I like Michael. And I think he did a lot for pro wrestling. But, uh, you know, in my day, Michael was just, you know, the guy outside the ring that you wanted him to be uh, whenever he was in public. Rick Brooks wants to know, do you have any Matt Bourne and Buzz Sawyer memories? You know, I just remember that Matt Bourne went over really well. Uh, Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer was new talent for us there later on. Helped us regain some of our momentum. Uh, they had some great matches. And, uh, you know, Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer was Mad Dog. He was just crazy. And you never knew what he was going to do. Uh, but he was a very, very well-packaged heel and uh, really helped our office there when we needed that push. Rumor Spencer wants to know, uh, what did you think of Rick Rude and Dingo Warrior, who ultimately later on become the ultimate warrior? Well, Rick Rude came in and Percy Pringle was his manager. Uh, Rude was good-looking, obvious superstar in the ring. And uh, he was packaged by Pringle. And uh, Pringle had followed Jim Cornette. And uh, Pringle really had to establish himself because, you know, nobody was a better heel manager than Cornette. But uh, Pringle, Pringle, you know, he packaged Rude in a way. It's like one night Rude had not said a whole lot on the interview, but uh, Percy had done most of the talking. And Percy closed it by saying, and by the way, for all you girls out there, you just need to understand that Rick Root is mine. He's all mine. And you can't have any of it. 
<laughs> you know, and, and Rude wasn't with us very long, but he did a great job. And Helwig came, and, uh, you know, he had the build. <clears throat> you knew he was going to draw a crowd just because he was so good looking. And uh, he was developing talent. I didn't know till later that he had started out with Jared. But, uh, you know, as the bingo, he had the painted face. He had the the uh, mysterious mystique of a little bit of mystery about him. Uh, I tried to connect with him a little bit and found it very difficult to do so. So I just kind of stayed away. He was a little bit aloof, a little bit hard to to get along with it, had the rapport in the back with some of the other guys, but you knew he was going to do well, and it wasn't long before he got uh, taken away. And, you know, he had a great career, and I'm sorry we lost him so early. Yeah, you know, uh, that was really wild when he passed away. It was almost like he was foretelling his death the last night. He was on Raw after all those years of being of having animosity with, the, with between him and WWE and, you know, talking about living every day as if it's your last. And then the next day, you know, he passed away, and it was – Really, really crazy to watch. Uh, Adam Fairfax wants to know, did you have much interaction with Fritz's wife, Doris? Not really. I, I was a guest in their home uh, several times. Doris was always very gracious, had a beautiful smile. She would come to the office only occasionally, and when things were unraveling toward the end, she got mad. Uh, she and Fritz were having issues. Uh, you know, they divorced. I guess most people know that. But to her credit, she came back and nursed Fritz uh, when he was dying of cancer. Uh, so she never quit loving him. It was just so much had been heaped on all of them. But, uh, you know, she was a, just a good behind-the-scenes traditional mom and wife and uh, was just a lovely person. James wants to know, Mark, do you miss wrestling? Yes and no. When it was my time to say goodbye, it was my time to say goodbye. And I went on with that phase of my life. Uh, was finishing seminary. The next year I got married. That same year I graduated seminary. I started a new church from scratch. So my world happened fast. And uh, I went on and didn't keep up with a whole lot. I think I went back to Sportatorium one day and visited with Embry Bronco and gorgeous Gary Young, who was in Charlotte, by the way, two weeks ago. But uh, in recent years, there has been so much interest in that era again, and so few people left who could tell the story that I've had a lot of interest again. Steve Austin did a podcast in my office. Uh, I've done numerous podcast for a, a lot of other people. Uh, I got a phone call uh, from a stranger. I don't even remember who it was. It told me Jerry Jarrett had talked a lot about me and was able to get Jarrett's number and connected with Jarrett by phone, even drove over to see him there. He and Deborah and spent a day with them. Oh, wow. uh, it was a magnificent time uh, two years ago uh, this summer. And so all of that, you know, has rekindled a little interest and in, Keeping up with Jeff. Jeff was just starting in our office when Jerry was there. Very nice, good-looking young man. He wasn't near as big as he got. I know uh, Jerry would always feed him a five or six egg breakfast and 
uh, all this stuff, you know, to bulk him up, even in those world-class days and the USWA days. But I have begun to develop an interest in it. And then when this guy, uh, good-looking family man that I've already described from Oklahoma starts calling me, uh, don't look around the room. Uh, you know, it just is sparking my interest again. And me being such a prima donna with you and not committing to anything uh, is partly because, you know, uh, I'm afraid I'm just out of touch and and not able to dive back in. But I am giving it serious thought. We have the utmost faith in you. And, and you know, I know it just has to be on your bucket list to work with Eric again, you know. There goes this baby face routine again. <laughs> you know, Eric, uh, and I feel the same way. You know, we feel that, you know, with us returning to television and relaunching that, uh, you know, you're the perfect guy to tell those stories still. You know, you can say that you don't know if you still belong and you don't know if you still got it, but you don't forget how to tell stories. Well, that's just a nice way of saying I'm full of, uh, what was it I said earlier? Poop. Poop. Uh, you know, they say money talks and BS walks, but BS will, will lead you in the right direction, especially in pro wrestling. But, uh, so true. <laughs> you know, we'll just have to see what develops. I may bore everybody to death. I, I think it would be a blessing for everybody involved to see you come back one last time and everything comes full circle, you know, and I have no doubt you have that one last, one last run in you. Uh, Fritchie Snitzel. Wanted to know uh, what what is this one last run? How old do you think I am? I didn't say the run was going to be short. Uh, you're talking like a heel all of a sudden now. You know, I'm, 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 I've been both. I've been both. I'm going to have to dye my hair. I'm going to have to get a rug or something. Uh, one last run. That's, I know you still helping. have those jackets, don't you? That's not helping your cause. You didn't get rid of the jackets, did you? I'm not talking to you about the jackets or anything else, boss. Yeah, because you still have the jackets, and you want to put them on one more time. <laughs> well, actually, way more than one more time. <laughs> what were your thoughts overall on uh, the Von Erics in general, like each one of them? like Because they were all very different individuals. Do so you, we'll, start, we'll start with David. What were your thoughts on David? Do you remember my plaid jacket, the red, not, not red, the blue and yellow one? Yes. It's see it in some of the youtube videos i still have that and can still fit into it uh so i may have to wear that along with those other tv jackets that had the monogram now back to the von erics what tell me your question again we'll just go one by one because they were all so different what were your thoughts on david well david had the most passion he was most like his father he was most intense he was a great guy he uh was pleasant and uh affirming but he was filled with ideas and you just knew instinctively that he was the business he lived the business it was a natural for him and he could be the toughest fritz-like person in the ring that you would ever find what about carrie carrie was flaky he had a heart of gold he had the body of a god. He had a playful side to him. Uh, I think I may have told you the other night, uh, Fritz's office was upstairs at the Sportatorium. 
that's where his office was during the week, and his secretary was up there. Only part of the building that was air-conditioned had shag carpet on the floor around Fritz's desk. The boys love the shag never carpet. dressed with the other guys downstairs. They always dressed in Fritz's office. And they would bring their wives in sometimes on Friday nights. And Carrie, of course, was a god. Everybody wanted to be around him. Carrie took great delight in parading around Fritz's office without a stitch of clothing on and bring guests in with his wife in the room. And she would be totally mortified that these strangers would come in and there's her husband walking around naked. And Carrie thought it was hilarious. He just got <laughs> the biggest kick out of it. He was a flake. He was fun. He had a heart of gold. He was great in the ring. Uh, Carrie, you know, just never had anybody to really love him, uh, to help him with some life decisions, because those guys were such superstars that they would say anything, do anything, give them anything, even substance abuse-wise, to get close to them. And, uh, you know, as you know, we all know, sadly, there were some bad choices. But Carrie was a good guy. What about Kevin? Kevin was a good guy, too. Kevin... uh, kind of a mystic personality. Uh, Kevin kind of lived in his own world, almost like the free birds. Those boys had enough diversity. There were not any two of them alike. Uh, Kevin wasn't as hard a worker. After my first four or five years, uh, the barefoot routine, you know, they argued about that. Is that really as much of a gimmick as it is the fact that he just didn't want to have to take the time to lace up those boots. Uh, but you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't know, you know, even now he still doesn't wear shoes. Yeah, he, he probably doesn't. Kevin just, you know, he's the one that lived through it all. He's been through so much, uh, even with Fritz and then the demise of his family. Uh, it's just hard for me not to say anything other than revering thoughts about Kevin because he's a hero, not only that he's still in the business, but he's still in life. Absolutely. Uh, So I have great, great appreciation and respect for Kevin. You know, I think a lot of that too. I think, you know, there's a lot of credit to Pam too. You know, Pam is an amazing woman and, you know, she's been by his side through all of that. Uh, You know, another testament to Kevin was, uh, you know, I think he raised Marshall and Ross to ensure that they didn't live that life. You know, that they, uh, you know, they didn't, they don't get into anything. You know, er, you know, they worked for me for years and, and they're such great guys. And, uh, you know, I love seeing them go on the run that they're going on now because, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, the Von Erics were the, the family that you wish you had oftentimes on television. But watching Marshall and Ross, everything about them is authentic now, you know, and, and I think it's wonderful to see. And you've seen Marshall and Ross in person, too. You've, you've spent time with them as well. Yes, I have. And I remember Pam. Pam was a doll, gorgeous, Absolutely. brunette, very quiet. Uh, and she has been that liturgy wife, you know, better for worse, sickness, health, richer, poor, uh, death do us part, traditional wife. And she is a hero. And, uh, you know, those boys, you know, one of them looks a little bit like Carrie, and then the other one looks like his mother with that dark hair. Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're both good-looking guys. Of course, you know, I don't know how old they are. They're probably in their early 30s now. But 
Uh, I hope they do real well, and I hope we get to well here. I'm not going to commit to that. I'm not going to say we. Hope you get to use them some. Uh, you already said we. You can't take it back. It's in public record. Uh, have you had any time or any chance to spend time with Lacey? No. Lacey's a really good woman, too. Uh, she actually bought into a wrestling company herself and is uh, exploring more into the wrestling world. So that's going to be interesting to see. Uh, but, you know, she's worked for me a couple of times, too. I really enjoyed my interactions with her. And uh, I think the first time they were actually on a wrestling show, all three of them together, was a show we did for North Texas. Oddly enough, Bill Mercer was was there, as well as Kevin. And uh, we'll move on. What, what about Mike Von Eric? You know, I never really knew Mike that well. Mike was always very gracious. Mike always seemed a little uncomfortable. Uh, I never knew how excited Mike was to be involved. Uh, he was a little bit, I think, like me. The first three years I was doing TV, it's like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Why am I here? Uh, but he was a good guy. He was a sweet guy. He never had anything but good intentions. Uh, worked hard, did the best he could. It was just so sad that he had to endure what he did. And, uh, you know, with some good life coaching, it may have been different. But uh, sadly, that just wasn't available to any of those guys. Well, not just the Von Erichs, any of the great talent we had. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, there wasn't as much uh, awareness when it came to, like, mental illness and, uh, you know, things of that nature back then. You know, not mental illness in a bad way, but depression, anxiety, things of that nature. And, I, you know, I don't – you would know, obviously, better than me, but, you know, I don't want to know what it was like to try to walk in the Von Erich shoes. You know, there were, there were such uh, oftentimes unrealistic expectations, probably. Yes, they never really got to let their guard down and just be who they were. They always had to be on. You know, I think that's one of the beautiful things now about, because uh, I went out to Hawaii and stayed with them for a week a couple of years ago. And uh, I think that's one of the beautiful things about seeing Kevin out there in that surrounding, uh, being able to enjoy his life every day. You know, he uh, goes to a waterfall almost every day and relaxes, gets up and climbs in trees and, and is at peace. And, you know, it's like you said earlier, after all he's gone through, it's a beautiful thing to see him find that peace in life. And, and that's, you know, it's amazing after everything he's been through. I can't even imagine. Yes, I can't either. And I'm glad he's happy. What's your thoughts on uh, Chris Adams? Well, Chris was a tremendous talent in the ring. Uh, his build, his mobility, his acrobatics, that super kick, his passion, his intensity. Uh, even when he was a baby face, he could come across with some heelish qualities. Uh, and then as a heel, you know, he was just as arrogant as they came. Uh, <laughs> as I've discussed with you candidly, uh, I didn't care for Chris personally, but I sure respected him in the ring. He was top, top shelf. Him and Gino together were magic. Dynamic duo. Absolutely. Uh, is, is there anything you want to say before we uh, close it up tonight to everyone watching? Because like I said, there were a lot of people that tuned in tonight that were very interested to see you. And, you know, I think that that speaks volumes for your legacy in world class. Well, I'll leave you with one of my favorite wrestling stories of all time. Uh, we've established that to the audience that likes wrestling, there is nothing bigger than that. 
uh, to some of the world, you know, they look at it like, you know, what in the world's that all about? But I had been out of the business for about five years and had taken my father to a Texas Ranger baseball game in Arlington on a beautiful summer evening, like the one we've got now where it doesn't get light or dark till about nine o'clock. And we were in the upper deck and about the fifth inning, I had to step and go to the restroom. And so down the steps, I come and down the portal, big wide concourse area. And I'm going to make a U-turn into the men's room. And this guy is standing out in the concert, in the, in the concourse. And I saw his eyes lock on mine. And he just watched me with fascination as I walked into the restroom. And I didn't really pay that much attention to it. I noticed it. But when I came out, he was there. And he starts saying, it's you. It's you. You're, you're the guy. Oh, I can't believe it, man. It's Mark Lawrence from wrestling. Oh, you were great on there. And the Von Erichs and the Freebirds, you know. And it's been years. And my chest begins to swell. And I begin to kind of look around a little bit to see if anybody might be noticing this. And after all these accolades, he throws at me. He says, oh, man, what are you doing now? And just all the pride I could muster, I said, well, friend, I'm, I'm a United Methodist minister now. And he looked at me and his face dropped and he said, oh, no, man, I'm sorry. What happened? Oh, my gosh. And I'll never forget that moment. So just hilarity at its best. You know, Terry, uh, this is a good way to end it. Terry, uh, he had a great idea. And his idea is Mark can join us December the 11th and come in for three weeks to fill in. And we can take it from there. <laughs> I'll consult Kathleen D. White, Fritz's secretary, on that opportunity. Absolutely. I wouldn't have it any other way. You've been very patient with my nonsense tonight. Thanks for having fun with me. Uh, thank you for being a part of it. We really enjoyed it. And I know everybody watching has too, because we've had comments the entire time. Yes, it's been very well received. Thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, we'll let you close it off with whatever you want to tell the fans. Well, thank you for all the great stuff you've done with wrestling over recent years uh, and the people you've interviewed. And uh, I'll, I'll close tonight by telling my Jim Cornette story. He was at the Fan Fest two years ago, and we had eight or 900 people in the banquet room for the dinner. And I was supposed to honor Bruiser Brody's wife, Barbara Goodish. And Cornette was there with the Midnight Express, uh, Eaton, Fulton, uh, Stan Lane. And Cornette was dressed head to toe in pink. It was a pink suit, pink shoes, pink slacks, pink shirt pink blazer, pink tie. Uh, it was just absolutely repulsive, just like Cornette. And I wasn't supposed to do this, you know. I was supposed to stick to line, but I couldn't help myself. I got up and said, before I introduce this lovely woman, Barbara Goodish, I want to thank everyone for being here, for supporting this great event, and just say, isn't it almost a godly moment that here we are tonight, after all the heartburn, the anxiety, the indigestion, the diarrhea that Jim Cornette brought to us on interviews and in my life as the announcer, that he has found employment at this stage of life with Pepto-Bismol. And the place just erupted with <laughs> Cornette loved it. 
And it's that kind of stuff that has me a little bit interested and curious again uh, about the business in the future.